Well, we're continuing today our series uh, called That You May Believe. It's a series taking us through the Gospel of John. And we'll be camping out in it for a while as we're going to kind of walk through almost the entire Gospel. And it's premised, of course, on this uh, great truth that the claims of Christianity are event-based, not just idea-based. Christmas and Easter set before us historical claims to which we must respond. And the Apostle John tells us at the end of his gospel why he wrote. We're, we're remembering this purpose every week through this series. This is what he said. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John's writing was that we might believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that we might have life in the name of Jesus. He wrote so that we might respond to the claims of Jesus by placing our trust, resting our lives upon Christ. So today we're up to chapter four. We'll be reading the story of the woman at the well. So let's listen to the scripture now. The scripture reading is taken from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, verses one through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. So again, kind of like we've been remembering through this series, understanding a little of the cultural background helps us understand what Jesus was, was getting at. Uh, and a couple weeks ago, I'm not sure if you, you were here for that message, but I, I mentioned that uh, the Apostle John has this pattern of taking kind of some of the institutions of Judaism and showing how Jesus came to fulfill those in abundance. This is a pattern that he uses throughout the gospel, and that'll come into play for us here. But, but specifically, three cultural things that are important to know before we dive into the story. Uh, first, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Samaritans were the low life of the entire region. There wasn't just conflict between Jews and Samaritans. Almost everybody looked down on Samaritans. This was the marginalized people group of this whole area, right? Uh, a, a strictly observant Jew, uh, even though the shortest line between uh, Judea and Galilee would take you through Samaria, they might very well choose to take the longer route and travel around so as not to risk being made unclean or defiling themselves. So Jews just don't talk to Samaritans. Second, Jewish men didn't talk to women in public. I mean, major gender stuff going on in this story, right? I mean, women uh, were considered second-class citizens, and to quote one historian, Jewish men rarely acknowledged a woman's presence in public, let alone talk to her. So a huge thing there, big gender barrier. And finally, this woman was an outcast even among her own people, who, remember, were the marginalized people of the whole area. I mean, she was coming to get water at noon in the midday sun. This meant that in the honor and shame-based culture of her day, uh, she had succumbed to shame. She was considered tarnished goods by her own people. Her shame was so public that she avoided people, kept to herself. Right? Everyone else came to get water at the beginning of the day, but here she was in the middle of the day, the heat of the, of the day, to avoid the pain, to avoid the humiliation pressing down on her. The social status in that day was that if you were living with a man who wasn't your husband, you were a prostitute. She had been relegated to the fringe of society, considered dirty and unclean. Thus, the woman's stunned response to Jesus' request for a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. 
how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Translated, dude, you're breaking all the rules. <laughs> I mean, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Well, I mean, this will get you in trouble. I'm a Samaritan, so even you just talking to me could bring shame on you. I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan woman. You even talking to me could bring shame on you. So she, she highlighted the first two cultural tensions right away, the, the Jewish Samaritan thing and the man-woman the man thing. Notice that she left the third tension out that had to do with her kind of status in life, right? She didn't bring that to light right away. She didn't name the reality that she was sneaking out in the middle of the day to, you know, to get the water. Later in the passage, we of course know that Jesus already knew about her life choices, knew all about, she'd had five husbands and the sixth guy now she was living with wasn't her husband. He knew all about her reputation in the community. She had a reputation. This was Susie Samaria. And everybody knew about Susie. But the beautiful thing about Jesus in this interaction uh, is that he did not interact with her based on her status in society on the fact that she was a Samaritan woman with quite a reputation. Because you see, when Jesus looked at her, he did not see a person defined by that societal status. He saw a daughter whom God loves and who God wants back. It's one of the beautiful things of Christian forgiveness. There's a a verse in the Bible that talks about when God forgives us, he remembers our sin no more. And I, I used to wonder about that like, does God have a magic button that he presses to, like, whoosh, wipe the memory clean? I mean, how does, this, how does this work? How could God not remember? Uh, and then I came to learn that the language isn't really talking about him literally forgetting our wrongdoing. What it means is that God no longer remembers our wrongdoing against us. And that's the key, right? That's the key of forgiveness, that God no longer remembers our wrongdoing against us and here Jesus is modeling how we as his followers might engage with a world who does not yet know him. Gracious, choosing not to remember wrongs against people as we engage them. look, Look at what he said. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So just by by means of full disclosure, we read 26 verses uh, of a story that could be the basis of an entire sermon series just in, in and of itself. So I had to pick a focus. This is it for the day. If you knew, you would have asked, and he would have given. If you knew, you would have asked, and he would have given. So if, if you knew, if you knew specifically, Jesus says, the gift of God and who it is that asks. So let's unpack those a little bit, the gift and the identity. So the gift, I mean, this could seem a little mysterious, right? As, as followers of Jesus, we know that life is full of gifts from God. So, I mean, what, what gift are we talking about? I mean, 
I, I thought right away of Psalm 104, this, this beautiful psalm that rehearses the gifts of God in creation. God provides life for us physically. He provides food, shelter, health, healing. I mean, everything we, that we need, life itself, the ongoing reality of life God is providing. Every good thing in life is a gift from God. So what gift are we talking about here? Well, in the New Testament, there's one particular gift of God that is made very clear and is the result of what Jesus came to do for us. It's stated very succinctly in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life. Now let's not stop there, keep thinking with me, okay, because often in our culture when we hear eternal life, we just think heaven when you die or some kind of unending extension of what it is that we're experiencing right now. So we have to ask ourselves: is that assumption right? Is that what the Bible means by eternal life? Uh, what does the scripture say about eternal life? Did Jesus himself speak directly to what this might mean? Well, the answer to that is yes, Jesus did speak directly <laughs> to what eternal life means. In, in the, the great high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus is praying to God and he says this, now this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So according to Jesus, eternal life is knowing God and him, Jesus. And the Bible says elsewhere that if we want to know who God is and what God is like, we should look at Jesus. Remember these verses from Colossians. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus now, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we could say that the biblical understanding of eternal life is knowing God through Jesus. So the gift of God is knowing God through Jesus and it's much, much more than simply heaven when we die or an extension of the life we're experiencing right now. It's a different kind of life. It's a new life. Last week, Pastor Brian uh, uh, preached on John chapter three. It's the story where Nicodemus and Jesus interact and, and you know, in, in the great conclusion of that, Jesus is, is saying, look, the, the life I'm talking about is so different that it would be like being born again like you're entering an entirely new kind of life. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul is writing kind of pastoral coaching tips to his young apprentice Timothy. In chapter six, he specifically coaches Timothy around how to pastor wealthy people, financially wealthy people. And he, he gives some specifics and then he explains why he's coaching him in this way. So that they meaning the financially wealthy people, may take hold of the life that is truly life. And, it, and again, it's not that, that wealth is the problem, right? The biblical understanding isn't that uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not what scripture says. Uh, I'm sorry, that money isn't the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. So the, the deceitfulness of wealth is the problem. But the point here, even though Paul was writing to a specific case, is that he's differentiating between kinds of life. There's a kind of life masquerading in our world that says, hey, this is the real deal. And it ain't the real deal at all. 
And Paul's writing to his pastor apprentice to say, invite people to the kind of life that is truly life. And that life is accessible to us right now. Because, back to that verse from Colossians we looked at, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So if you have not experienced peace with God, that is available to you right now. Like if you've never initially experienced that it's available. If you feel that you're far from God right now, you can come home, come back home right now. If you don't feel like you know God, that's available to you right now. I'm not talking about uh, uh, knowing about God. That's not what I mean. I I mean knowing God like you would know a person, relationally, personally. That is available to us right now. We can know who God is and what God is like. I mean, Jesus is inviting us to trust him. That's what Christian faith is, trusting Christ. And and we're invited to do that. This gift of God is is so amazing that we we see the, the background, the heart of Jesus in his approach to the woman at the well. If you knew, if you only knew the gift of God, and it's about knowing the gift of God and, said Jesus, the identity of the one asking her for a drink, right? The identity of, of Christ himself. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink. And this is really the reason Jesus got in trouble with the Jewish leaders, ultimately got himself killed, is because he made very clear claims about who he was. To us, it seems a little misty, but to the people of Jesus' day, it was absolutely clear And in writing his gospel, John highlights these claims that Jesus made. He records the statements uh, made by Jesus known as the I am statements. We're going to touch on these going uh, going through this series, but here's a, a quick preview of the seven of them. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And and all of these I am statements harken back to that time Moses was on Mount Sinai and God asked him to take the message back to to the Israelites and here's what Moses did. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So when asked his name, God said that his name is I am. So it's very clear. When Jesus stood there and said, I am the bread of life, he was saying, I am God standing right in front of you. If you only knew who it is that asks you for a drink. And in his interaction with the Samaritan woman, Jesus foreshadows these I am statements. Look at the very uh, last couple verses of the text for the day. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. 
Very interestingly, in the original language, the pronoun he is not there. Translated literally, the Greek reads like this, I am who speaks to you. Hmm. Maybe this is the eighth I am statement. Really? I am. Regardless, it's very clear that Jesus claimed to be God. And the apostle Paul wrote so that we might believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, respond to him in faith, and have life in his name. So there's the gift of God in the identity of the one who was asking for a drink. But Jesus had more to say to the woman than just that. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So there it is. If you knew, you would have asked and he would have given. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I remember when I was a new Christian reading the Bible for the first time, I thought living water simply referred to all the good spiritual stuff that Jesus gives. And I came to understand that living water in Jesus' time was an actual definition of a kind of water. It it referred to moving water, flowing water, like in a, a spring or a stream or a river or something, as opposed to still water in a a cistern or a well or a pond or or something like that. Living water. In Jesus' day, living water was very precious, very valuable. Every settlement was built around some kind of water source and sources of living water were considered the very best. Now this interaction between Jesus and the one at the well happened in Shechem. And the woman and everybody else in Shechem understood that there was no living water in sight. They had a well, they had Jacob's well, but there was was no spring, there was no stream, there was no river anywhere in sight. So you can see what Jesus is doing here. He's he's throwing this claim out and it's kind of destabilizing her a little bit. Like, wait, what, there's no, what are you, huh? What are you talking about? Well, according to rabbinic law, living water was the, only kind of water that could be used in ritual washings to make unclean worshipers clean, pure. You needed living water to make yourself clean to come and worship God. I mean, so you can see the pieces coming together, right? Jesus was saying to the woman, if you knew, you would have asked and I would have cleansed you of your sin and made you pure before God. That's what the living water thing is about. And that's, again, Jesus fulfilling in abundance some aspect of Judaism, right? The ritual cleaning that people had to do before going to worship. (laughs) Here's the ultimate cleansing, once and for all. Never needs to be done again. Because that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus came to do. This isn't just nice religious talk to to kind of fill up the religious silo of your life or to experience a, a better life spiritually. This is what's really going on in the world, right? It's for that purpose that Jesus lived. It's for that purpose that he died on the cross to become our substitute that we might be reconciled to God through his blood shed on the cross. Look at what the apostle John wrote in another place. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us 
from all unrighteousness. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the, the playing field is level at the foot of the cross. Skin color doesn't matter. Bank account doesn't matter. How you grew up doesn't matter. Every single human being everywhere stands before God having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and offended God relationally in our relationship with him and we're in desperate need of help. However, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us. See, the promise isn't just to forgive you for all the stuff of the past, though that is part of the promise. It's to be purified, to be made just as if it never happened. Thus, uh, we can understand what the author of Hebrews meant when, when he wrote that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's only in that confidence of being completely purified by Jesus that we can come before God. And this, this is the offer, right? This is the new covenant. This is what we celebrate every time we celebrate communion. That God not only keeps his end of the deal, but in Jesus he has come to us for the purpose of keeping our end of the deal for us. So God keeps his end of the deal and in Jesus, God keeps our end of the deal for us so that we can live a completely reconciled relationship with God. I mean, any way you look at that, that is an amazing deal. That, that is what the gospel is about. Thus, Jesus' heart for people. If you knew, if you only knew. I mean, look, look at what he said in Matthew. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Right? Let's not make the mistake Jesus is naming here. A lack of knowledge prevented this woman from asking for the gift God desires to give. A gift that Jesus died to offer. James wrote it this way. If, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Jesus said a lot about asking and receiving. What that looks like. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. And we can know God. Really. We can be forgiven. We can have a whole new start. We can receive a new kind of life. And with God's help we can move toward being the people we were created to be. You've experienced the gap. I've experienced the gap so often, right? You feel it. I was made for more than my petty selfishness, than my unending focus on me and what's good for me. You know, we were built for more. The best and highest calling in this life according to Jesus is in giving our lives away in his name. Right? There is a depth of peace that's, ava- that's, that's, that's available to us that is difficult to put into words. There's a certainty of faith available that offers a security no circumstance can shake. And there's a received identity in Christ available to us that that centers us and settles us in the deep, deep love of God.
So why? Oh, why would we leave any of this on the table when it's free for the asking? Thus the cry of Jesus' heart for us and, and all of humanity. If you knew, if you only knew, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.